Well, if you have your copy of Scripture, go ahead and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17. If you're using a copy of the Church Bible, you'll find that on page 239. We're looking at 1 Samuel 17, and we're going to look at the totality of this chapter together, uh, the well-known account of David and Goliath. And hopefully we're going to see this in a new light, as we ought to see it in redemptive history as we are working our way through this series on Christ in the Old Testament, seeing the sun from the shadows. And this is a lengthy passage. I debated whether or not to read the entire thing. I think I'm going to, even though it's going to take us probably eight or nine minutes to read this. But there is a reason why there is so much in this chapter. There is one verse about David's victory over Goliath, and there are 50-some other verses, 57 other verses, uh, because we are meant to slow down and we are meant to pay attention to the details. And so that's the rationale. And so um, as we are looking at this together here in 1 Samuel 17, 1, we read, Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Succo, which belonged to Judah, and encamped between Succo and Azekah in Ephesdamim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spearhead weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourself and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem and Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. The names of his three sons who went with to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistines came forward and took his stand, morning and evening. And Jesse said to David his son, take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses. And I know you are going to be really interested in the cheeses and what this has to do with Jesus. So just hold on. The ten cheeses to the commander of their thousands. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel went into the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines, and David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went, as Jesse commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. 
And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran, ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistine and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel, and the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches, and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free, presumably from taxes, in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart. You've come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke the same way, and the people answered him again as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after him and struck it and delivered it out of its mouth. And if he arose again, I caught him by the beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hands of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail, and David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The worst thing he could have done, by the way. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beast of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear, and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. 
When the Philistine arose and came and drew nearer to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine in his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. Then the Philistines saw that their champion was dead. They fled and the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron so that the wounded Philistine fell on the way from Sha'arim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it into Jerusalem. But he put his armor in his tent. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from striking down the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? And David said, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, in his really excellent little book, uh, The Kingdom and the Gospel, Graham Goldsworthy tells the story of a man who was invited to speak at a Sunday school event, and he determined he was going to speak on this chapter. But most recently, he had been at church, and he had seen uh, a children's event, and, and really sad that this chapter often just gets sequestered into children's Sunday school. Um, but he had seen this event where the man who dressed up as Goliath had, had revealed a list of childhood sins by peeling cardboard stri- strips off his breastplate one by one, and, and Goldsworthy says, he explained that we all have these Goliaths that we meet. And, and then he said a strapping young David appeared and, and he produced a, a sling labeled faith and five stones listed as obedience, service, Bible reading, prayer, and fellowship. And, and, um, and as Goldsworthy tells the story, he said that that man named Ken, while he was recounting this to his friends, uh, said, well, it, it was sort of cute what they did, it, it really disturbed him that uh, there would be so much confusion over how the Old Testament story should be applied today. Um, I think most of us have had a similar experience. I know I certainly grew up in Sunday school classes or at the Dispensational Baptist uh, school I went to through fifth grade where that, that exact play happened. It might have been the same people touring the country, putting on that same play of... <laughs> childhood sins, and here's your sling of faith, and your stone of obedience, and Bible study, and prayer, and this is how we defeat our Goliaths. And that's not why this is in the Bible. Certainly, it has application to our Christian lives. Certainly, David is an example of faith. He is in the great faith chapter by way of illusion, and so we don't want to diminish that, but, but this account, uh, it comes at a very important point in redemptive history. And it is set in a very important context that that helps us understand why is this in the Bible? This is actually the first major introduction to David that we're going to have. David has been anointed by Samuel two chapters earlier. He, He has then been brought into King Saul's house 
as, as a musician to calm Saul when he has the distressed spirit, but this is the first time we see David as a man in action. It's going to be the first time we hear David speak in the Bible. By the way, the Old Testament gives more, more focus on David than any other character. He is so incredibly significant, and this leads off the ministry that God has anointed him to and called him to. Now, um, as we consider this tonight, and, and there's a lot here, I just want us to consider three things briefly. I want us to consider an unimaginable enemy, an unlikely warrior, and an unexpected victory. An unimaginable enemy, an unlikely warrior, and an unexpected victory. Well, we, we are introduced immediately in this section to the Philistines. And you know well, the Philistines were one of Israel's most formidable enemies. In fact, it, it would be right for us to argue that they were the most formidable enemy of Israel. And, and they were representatives of Satan's kingdom. They were everything that opposed the, the God of, of heaven and earth, the true and living God, the covenant Lord who had made a people for himself. They were the exact opposite. In fact, they are, they are the ones called by David uncircumcised Philistines. They are intentionally set against the covenant Lord and his covenant work and purposes among his people. And, and you'll know that Samson had already prepared the way for the destruction of the Philistines. Remember, in his death, Samson had pulled down the temple of Dagon and he had, he had destroyed 400 of the lords of the Philistines. He had paved the way for David to, to complete what he had begun. And here, as God has rejected Saul and anointed David, um, the Lord is showing us what he's going to do uh, through David, but that David is going to face this unimaginable enemy. Um, you get the sense when we read about Goliath that he is the worst and the most threatening enemy Israel has faced. Um, certainly, later in their history, they'll, they'll come under the oppression of the Babylonians and Nebuchadnezzar and many other oppressive kings, but, but, but no one is in Israel will take on this giant. Now, Goliath is probably somewhere around nine foot six, most scholars are going to uh, conclude, and, um, and, and there are lots of liberal theologians that say nobody is that tall. Have you ever seen someone that's nine foot six? Well, actually, the, the tallest person alive is eight, eight, seven, eight, 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 nine. Um, so not that far off from even what we have today. And yet, Goliath would have been a descendant of those giants that Israel had seen in the land when the spies went in, and they said they had seen giants in the land. He would have been one of the descendants of those giants, and, and he was a renowned champion. So great, this, this man was hewn to be a warrior. So great was he that the Philistines entrusted their entire victory to him. That, so confident were they that no one could defeat Goliath of Gath that they would put him out on the front line and they would let him uh, go to representative battle against someone from Israel. Now, that was not altogether inappropriate in, um, in the ancient world, in the ancient Near East. There were occasions where uh, two armies would line up against each other and they would have representative warriors and whoever won was supposed to win for himself, although it never panned out that way. Even if they lost, they fled just like the Philistines. The Philistines said, we'll be your servants. They don't become the servants of Israel, but, but this was not altogether unusual in that world. 
But what's interesting is it's the only occasion I could think of in the entire history of Israel where you have representative warfare. Um, You have two men representing these armies, and whoever wins, wins for his people. And that's significant, I think, because we are supposed to understand when we look at Goliath, again, that Goliath is a type of the evil one. Even the way the Hebrew speaks about his, his, his armor being like scales, you almost get this picture that he's like whatever Leviathan was supposed to be in the book of Job, that he is a, he is a representative of Satan. Um, there is a famous uh, 18th century painting of David and Goliath, and, and Goliath's sword bearer has, or shield bearer has a shield with a serpent wrapped around a person. That's, that's what we're meant to see when we read about this. Um, Goliath is, is a, a Satan figure. He is everything that opposes the Lord. He mocks and derides the God of heaven. He thinks no one can take him down. And now he is entering in in representative battle against any in Israel that would come forward. And there are none to come forward to go to battle with him. Forty days. You know that 40 is a time of testing in the Bible. It is a period of testing. And Israel has gotten to such a place that you even get the sense of Eliab projecting his own unbelieving wicked heart onto David when he mocks his brother. And you get the sense that Eliab has probably fallen into a position of spectator sport at this point. So because no one's going to battle with this man, they'll just stand out there and watch him come to the valley and call to Israel and mock them, and there's no one that will take him on. Now, um, we are meant to see that, that Goliath represents the kingdom of Satan. And the kingdom of God is at a point of um, frantic need. It's at a point where it's not trusting the Lord. It's very interesting. As you read through this chapter, the only other person who speaks about the Lord is Saul when David prompts him by his own words. And you'll learn with Saul later that he just liked to take up the Lord's name even when he was doing wicked things. He, he just parroted things while he was doing wicked things. But, but Israel's not trusting the Lord. They're not acting like the covenant people. They're, they're in a place, they're in a low place when David comes to them. And they have this unimaginable enemy. Well, God is raising up an unlikely warrior. David is a shepherd. He, he tends sheep. Um, that is not a noble occupation in the ancient Near East. We're actually told that shepherds were despised. Um, you know, we tend to think about shepherds and we think, oh, what a compassionate heart. That guy loves the little lamb and we love lambs. And then they, you know, stuff out of here, stuff out of there. They're not all that, that cute. <laughs> but David, David, is, David is out there in a field by himself taking care of sheep. His brothers have gone into battle. His father wisely sends him down to take food to his brothers. Now, we know behind that is God's hand. God has already anointed David. Now, I say it's an unlikely warrior, not because David is not going to show himself to be an incredibly great and skillful warrior, but who should have been going to battle with Goliath? Well, Saul should have, right? Remember, why did the people pick Saul? Because he was tall. And here is this giant, and the text is telling us about his size and and his strength, 
And, and the only one that really should have been going to battle with Goliath was Saul, but he would not because he was a coward. By the way, you'll see this play out. Saul always has other people do his dirty work. Um, he'll do it with Doeg and the priest. Um, he'll always have others do his dirty work. Um, you see what kind of paltry leader Saul is at this point. And then beyond Saul, any of the warriors in Israel should have gone. Um, in fact, Ken asked me tonight, I, why didn't just a whole slew of these people get slings and just sling a bunch of rocks at Goliath? I don't know. That's a good question. <laughs> Nobody wanted to go to battle with Goliath. Um, and, and God is raising up this unlikely warrior. Now, why is that important? Well, there's something very interesting happening here. This chapter is actually not first and foremost about David and Goliath. This is about God showing who is going to be the king of his choice. Um, listen to this. Graham Goldsworthy says, The first major event recorded in David's experience as the anointed one is his slaying of Goliath. Here we see another part of the transition from judge savior, the book of Judges, to king savior. So, before this, you have judges. They serve as typical saviors. Now we're going to have a king savior. And, and I think Goldsworthy rightly says, David the anointed one challenges the enemy of God's people and kills the giant with the same results as the victories of the judges. Very interesting. He's acting just like the judges of old, doing for Israel what they cannot do for themselves, courageously going forward to do what he knows God will do and trust the Lord for that victory. And, and Goldsworthy says, it's a saving event in which the chosen mediator wins the victory. Now, I've already noted that you have representative warfare here. What's that about? Well, when we think of the Lord Jesus, and he is the greater son of David, and he, he, comes, um, he comes to his own people, he comes to the promised land, and, and what's the first thing he does? He faces the evil one, right? And his host of fallen angels and he cast out demons and then he's driven into the wilderness and what's going on in the wilderness he's going to hand-to-hand -hand battle with satan here is the son of david going against the true and greater goliath that's that's the point here's the king and the king has come to do what only he can do to be a savior and he's going to do it for his people and whatever he does he does for his people and whoever wins in that battle wins for their people, and whoever loses, loses for their people. That's, that's what's happening in this account. This is, this is Genesis 3.15 brought to fruition. Isn't that marvelous? The, the seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent in representative battle to redeem a people and make them the seed of the woman with him. That's, that's what's happening here. Um, if we miss that, and let me just say this this evening, if we miss that, then we have missed the entire canonical purpose of this account being in the Bible. This account is not in the Bible to teach, and we breed our children small, but it's not to teach little children that they can do great things and defeat great giants. That's not why it's in the Bible. It's in the Bible to say that there is going to be a greater son of David, a greater shepherd, a greater shepherd, king, who's going to win the victory as the savior of his people and establish the kingdom of God and rule and reign in righteousness. Um, 
David is an unlikely warrior. You know, as I thought about these parallels, and I have five for you tonight, um, here in this section, thinking about David and Jesus and how David is a type of Christ in this account, listen to this. David is the only one God has equipped to face the Philistine. Jesus is the only one equipped to face the evil one. There's only one. There's only one that God has appointed to win the victory. Number two, David is sent by his father to his brothers. Jesus is sent by his father to his brothers. And when David goes to his brothers, what did they do? They mock him. And when Jesus comes, what, what do his fellow Israelites do? They mock him. We know the wickedness of your heart. Eliab says to David, he projects his own evil and says, you have a wicked heart. We know you came down here just to watch the battle. And think about all the things that the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees said to Jesus, deriding him. You were born in sin. We know that you do this by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. He is mocked and derided by the very brethren he is sent to by his father. Um... And so that rejection and that mocking and that accusing is moving us to see that parallel with the Lord Jesus. Number four, David is meek and God-fearing in the face of the battle and his brother's rejection. Jesus is meek and God-fearing in the face of the battle and his brother's rejection. And then number five, David goes forth to war as a shepherd with a shepherd's staff and a shepherd's bag Jesus goes to war as the good shepherd, John 10. He says, I lay down my life for my sheep. He goes to war as a shepherd for the sheep. Now, um, David is unlikely warrior fighting an unimaginable enemy. And then there is an unexpected victory. Um, you know, we don't know what was going on in David's mind, but we can, we can assume that David didn't know exactly how this was going to play out. So David goes into this battle not knowing, here's what I'm going to do, boom, 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 done. In fact, he takes five stones, which shows he didn't know how many it would take. Um, and and uh, David rejects Saul's armor, not because it was too big on him, like our children Bibles almost always inappropriately presented as, but because he had not tested it out. This, David, David had tested out the sling and the, and the stone. He had had time to do that while he was out tending sheep, and he wanted to be confident that he was comfortable with whatever he went into this battle with. But more than that, and here's the real beautiful big picture is David knows, and he says this, David knows that the battle is the Lord's. David knows that the battle is the Lord's. Um, I mentioned this is the first time David speaks that we have recorded in Scripture, and, and we don't want to make too much of this. Some have said when he says, what shall be done for the man, there was a little selfish motive there. I'm not sure about that. I think David is confident, look, I mean, we can take him. The Lord, the Lord will deliver him. And, and what is the reward? Not enough. And then when the reward is set out, riches and no more taxes, sign me up and marry the king's daughter? Come on. <laughs> I mean, I don't even like the royal family and I'm watching this stuff on TV. Like, sign me up. This is, this is as big 
big a reward as you could possibly get. David doesn't get any of it, by the way, from Saul. <laughs> Saul will renege. But, but David, I think, in that first speech is saying, look, the Lord will give us the victory. Is this reward not big enough for any of you to know that beyond that? Because everything David says is confidence in the Lord and that, that incredible speech when, when, when Goliath comes and he mocks David and he, and he, he says, what are you coming out here to, to throw sticks to a dog? What, what, what is this? And, and you're just a child and you're little. And, and David says, you know, you come to me with sword and spear. I come to you in the name of the Lord God of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And David is certain that Yahweh is going to give the victory. David knows that there is no, there is no insurmountable enemy for Almighty God. David knows what God has promised. David is acting, and, and we don't want to miss this, David is acting in faith because David knows everything God has done for his people throughout all of covenantal history leading up to this. David was a man that took God at his word. I don't think for one second David thought, this, this may not go well for me. I don't think there was one second where David thought, this is not going to end well for me. Um, no, David didn't trust in human strength. He didn't go out with Saul's armor. You see a contrast between Saul and David throughout this passage. Saul's not trusting the Lord. Saul's trusting his own armor, his own sword. Um, you see a contrast between flesh and spirit, between human effort and faith. Um, you know, there's a picture there too, isn't there, that the Lord Jesus is never, he's never rattled by the enemies of God. You never get the sense that Jesus uh, thinks that the mission for which he's come is going to fail. Jesus goes forward to battle courageously trusting in his Father. There's a beautiful parallel there. Jesus knows who he's going to battle with. He says as he comes to the cross that, that this is your hour and the power of darkness. He's speaking to the forces of evil behind those coming and arresting him. He understands that he's going to battle against the forces of darkness, that he's going to battle against Satan himself, and, and he's going with, with, no human, with no human weapons. That the prophets will develop this theme, won't they, when they talk about not trusting in human strength and weapons and horses and kings and armies. And what's the point of that? Because God is going to come and God is going to win the battle by himself. I love in Hebrews 1 where the writer of Hebrews, after he tells us who Jesus is, the brightness of the Father's glory and the exact representation of his person and the one who upholds all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself made purification of our sins. He went, he went alone and he went trusting in his Father. Even when he hung on the cross, he was praying to his Father while he was making battle against the evil one. Now, I love the way Paul in Colossians 2 speaks about Jesus' victory over Satan. I think he's drawing off of this account in part. And he says that when Jesus was nailed to the cross, 
he disarmed principalities and powers. Have you ever thought about that? He has no hands or, hand, hands or feet to use. He's bleeding on a tree for our sin, and he's, and he's pulling down the eternal forces of darkness. He's taking the weapons out of the hand of the evil one while he hangs on the tree. That's the most unexpected victory in the Bible. This is just a precursor to that. Um, David goes forward into battle. You know this so well. He, he runs into battle. He runs toward the Philistines. He takes that one stone and he hits Goliath in the one place where he's not covered by his armor. And then, what does he do? How does he kill Goliath? With the stone, right? Wrong. With Goliath's sword. He goes over and he takes the sword out of the hand of Goliath and he cuts his head off. And, and in so doing that, he defeats Goliath with his own weapon. Isn't that interesting? He defeats Goliath with his own weapon. I've got to read you just a few quotes here briefly by Jonathan Edwards. Edwards, as he reflects on all of the things in this battle between David and Goliath, he says this. He says, as David, when he fought with Goliath, said that he would give the carcass of the host of the Philistines unto the fowls of the air, so Christ, the true David, now calls on the fowls of the air to come and devour the carcass of the enemies of his church. By the way, that is used in Revelation 11. That same language about Christ's victory over this wicked fallen world is drawn straight out of this account. Edwards says the devil had been the instrument of Christ being put to death. He put it into the heart of Judas to betray Christ. He stirred up anger and malice in the chief priests and leaders and elders of the people to offer cruelty to him so that their cruelty and the cross they used as the instrument of his death was, as it were, the devil's sword he used in battle against Christ. Now listen, just one more. God preserved David from Goliath and gave him the victory over him so that he cut off his head with his own sword and made him therein the deliverer of his people as Christ slew the spiritual Goliath with his own weapon, the cross, and so delivered his people. Now, there are people, and if they hear this sermon, they'll say that's, that's that sort of illegitimate spiritualizing that we don't want to do in the church. My friends, listen. If we don't read this account in redemptive history, moving to what Jesus did, we will never understand the purpose of it in the Bible. If we don't read it against the backdrop of Genesis 3.15 and then read it in the foreground of everything Jesus did, we will not understand the purpose of this. What is the purpose? The purpose is to make us confident that God has provided a king for us who has already been victorious, who has already defeated the evil one, as we heard this morning, has already disarmed principalities and powers so that even though we feel the attacks of the evil one, even though we feel the taunting of the evil one, even though we feel the accusations, when we look at the cross, we see that he has already been defeated with the very weapon he tried to use against Jesus. And as we understand that and we see God's purposes, we then trust in him and we follow him. We, we enjoy the victory he has already given us and, and we fight, I, I don't know who coined this phrase, we don't fight for victory, we fight from victory. So as God's people now, yes, we follow the example of David. Yes, we follow the example of Christ, but only because 
David was God's anointed victorious king who won the battle for God's people. And only because Christ, the son of David, is the anointed and victorious king who has won the battle against Satan's sin and death. So that my soul always needs to take repose in who Christ is and what he's done. So if I think it's about me first and foremost and taking on my Goliaths, I'm going to have a miserable life every time I fail to little sins that are no Goliaths, but are little foxes in the vineyard. Every time the little foxes steal the fruit from the vineyard, I'm going to be discouraged. Why have I failed again? I can't even take on the little foxes. David was taking on lions and bears and Goliath. And what's the point? God, God has provided a mighty shepherd, warrior, in the Lord Jesus, who has already won the victory for us so that we can now go out into the world and we can have the same faith as David that God will accomplish his purposes. So how does that work? The warfare in which we are engaged is the warfare of seeing the kingdom of God advance through the preaching of the gospel, through our faithful witness to the Lord Jesus, in telling others about him and not being afraid of what they're going to think when we tell them about the victorious shepherd redeemer, um, when we tell them how they can be saved. And the warfare we're engaged in, not just against our own sin, but is a warfare that has already been won for the Lord Jesus himself. And notice that in all of this, David does this with an eye to God's glory so that everything he does is with an eye to God's glory. Everything is, you have defied the Lord. The Lord will win this battle because you have come against the Lord of the armies of Israel. Everything David did, and this is an example we follow, everything David did, he did with an eye to God's glory. So that no matter how much the world rages around us, no matter how much the gospel seems to not be, not be spreading as quickly as we would like, the, the, the victory is already secured. You know, we're not trying to win the victory. Christ has already won the victory. We are fighting from the victory he has won. We are fighting against the world, the flesh, and the devil every day of our life. Um, you know, I want to encourage you as we think about this that we'll have a renewed sense of wonder how God, so long before Christ came, gave us these pictures to help us understand more of what he was going to be and what he was going to do. Um, that it would bolster our faith, that we would understand the greatness of the victory we already have. And that as we trust him and follow him, that we would also have the confidence that he has, that David had, in, in trusting the Lord going forward against unimaginable enemies, both within and without. Um, you know, I'm not sure if there's a greater statement of courage in the Old Testament than what this young boy David says to Goliath. I remember reading it as a new Christian, and, and something happened. I thought, that's so awesome that this, this <laughs> probably teenage boy could face the greatest warrior enemy 
and could say, you come to me with sword and spear. I come to you in the name of the Lord God of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied, and he will win this battle for the battle is the Lord's. What, what confidence we ought to have now that we know how the battle's been won. Think about it. We know more than David had a clue about. We ought to have the greatest confidence that when we go out and we serve the Lord faithfully in the gospel that he's already established for us, that, that he's going to win the victory. We sang this morning, and I love those words, and a mighty fortress is our God. You know, the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. Isn't that a comfort? His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word will fell him. Um, I hope that you'll be encouraged as you press on uh, as those trusting the Lord to, to see the greatness of God's victory over our enemies, that he secured that victory in Jesus Christ, and that we have a loving and mighty, compassionate and yet powerful shepherd, king, deliverer in the Lord Jesus. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us.